This message was presented at the GYC 2015 conference called Chosen Faithful in Louisville, Kentucky. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Before we pray, let me tell you a little bit about the seminar. When I attend a seminar, I'd like to know something about it, what direction the presenter is going to go in the seminar. And so if you have your program called Chosen and Faithful, if you'll just take that out momentarily and uh, look at the seminars, and if you drop down to the one, two, three, four, fifth, fifth seminar, the title of our seminar is Remnant Identity, Who We Are and Why It Matters. And I'm going to be looking at the whole concept of the remnant. What does the Bible mean when it talks about the remnant? Uh, who are the remnant? And we're going to study that through scripture in the first session. The second session, I'm going to talk about the book of Revelation, particularly the three angels' message, and how that is relevant to young people today. How can a university student really be excited about, turned on, uh, if they're a postmodern young person, by the whole message of the remnant? Well, I guess we've got to do two things here. We've got to, you have a speaker, and we've got to record. So this is our second uh, microphone. So we can put that on as well, and we're ready to go. Okay. Um, is the message of the Seventh Adventist Church, in particular the Three Angels message, a byproduct of 19th century mentality that has no relevance today? And so particularly in the second um, presentation. We're going to look at the great needs of the human heart in the 21st century. We're going to look at the great needs of contemporary society, and we're going to discover how the Adventist message is incredibly relevant. It's on the cutting edge of where the thought processes are in our society today. So we'll look at that in our second presentation. In our third presentation this, morning, this afternoon, we'll look at, is there a remnant of a remnant? Um, will God lead out of the Seventh-day Adventist Church a smaller, more faithful group? That is an incredibly important presentation for today. What is the shaking, and how does that function? What will Adventism face in the 21st century? What are some of the issues that it's facing, and how can we be prepared for them? So that's the third presentation. And then the fourth presentation later this afternoon is how a generation of youth, young adults, and older adults are going to be filled by the Holy Spirit to finish God's work on earth. When you look at the fact that on this planet there are between six and seven billion people, and you consider the fact that there are more people being born that are being reached, if you look at the Middle East with its multiplied billions uh, of people in China, with its over a billion some odd people, and you look at India with a billion some odd, and you look at the infinitesimal number of not only Seventh-day Adventists but Christians, but if you look at the whole world population, Christianity um, is very low in the whole world population, and then you look at the Seventh-day Adventist Church, it's less than 1% of the world population. So how can a small group ever expect to see the work of God finished? We're going to study that, and we're going to look at it from a prophetic standpoint, from a biblical standpoint, and from a practical standpoint. So our, our seminar lasts today, four sessions today. Tomorrow morning, for those that missed, I'll take sessions one and two and summarize them, and then uh, Sabbath afternoon, I'll take sessions three and four and summarize them. So the session really is, the seminar really is four sessions for today. So let's pray, and then we'll enter directly into our Bible study for the morning on remnant identity. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the opportunity to study your word. We thank you that the word of God is the living word, that it's inspired by God, and that as we open its sacred pages, that you will speak to us. So we invite you by your spirit. We give you permission to speak in our hearts, to our hearts, to change our lives. May this be a life-changing seminar. May we not only learn new thoughts, but may our hearts be changed. We pray thee in Christ's name. Amen. Does identity really matter? 
does who you are matter? Isn't it rather egotistical for Seventh-day Adventists to say, we are the remnant of the book of Revelation? When you look at all of the Christian churches and the varied Christian denominations, isn't it rather egotistical for a group of Adventists to say, we are the remnant, we have the truth? Um, it would be quite egotistical if it wasn't biblical, wouldn't it? And so when Seventh-day Adventists talk about the remnant, we're not talking about an exclusive doorway to salvation. We believe that those that have accepted Christ and are honest in heart, and even those who have not, we believe that salvation is a matter that we leave with God. We don't judge the salvation of other human beings. But we also believe that prophetically, God has raised up an end-time movement that will share his grace and love with others. And so this morning, we want to look at this whole matter of identity. And maybe to get us into the topic, I can tell you a story that took place about 150 years ago in England. A man I'll call Mr. Clarkson was a very sophisticated, very well-educated banker. He was well-known through that region of South England. He was one of the wealthiest men in the community, lived in a palatial estate, and as a premier banker in the banking industry, he employed hundreds of people. He had a beautiful daughter. She was beautiful in every way, physically beautiful, long, golden, blonde hair, blue eyes, just a very attractive, intelligent, uh, and he desired that she would largely take over the business after he died. She was in her 20s and unmarried, and working for Mr. Clarkson was a junior clerk, another guy in his 20s, but this guy had no social status at all. And he had a fancy for Clarkson's daughter. And so Mr. Clarkson got nervous about it because he said, look, my daughter is of the upper crust. She knows her identity. She is royalty and extremely wealthy. And why should she marry some second-rate junior clerk who's not going to make much of himself? When the junior clerk talked to Mr. Clarkson about taking his daughter's hand in marriage, Mr. Clarkson said, not so sure about this young man. What are you going to ever make of yourself? And he said, look, I'll give you one opportunity. Our bank has a business relationship with one of the largest brokers in Dusseldorf, Germany. I want you to go over and see what kind of business deal you can negotiate with them and, and show me your stuff and then come back and I'll consider my daughter marrying you. Well, this young man went to Dusseldorf and he was nervous, to say the least. I mean, really, really nervous. He knew that not only his future, but whether he could marry this girl he loved depended on it. So he went there and these people didn't want to talk to him. Nothing. To, Who are you? Why did the banker ever send you? And he said, uh, they said to him, you know, go back and send somebody more senior in the corporation. He listened for a while. Very wise young man. He smiled and he said to them, would it make a difference if I were the son-in-law of the banker? Would it make a difference if I married the banker's daughter who may become the president of the corporation? They said, yes, it would make a big difference if you could prove that. He went back and said to Mr. Clarkson, Mr. Clarkson, I have a question for you. Would it make a difference to you if I was just appointed as the chief associate and the representative of the firm in Germany, that they will do all business with you through me, would that make a difference? And Mr. Clarkson said, it would make a big difference. He said, let me marry your daughter and all that will happen. <laughs> Identity makes a difference, doesn't it? And when we study the remnant, we're looking at a royal identity. I'd like you to take your Bibles, and we're going to start with a familiar Bible text in Revelation chapter 12, verse 17. 
but we're only going to begin there and come back to that text. We will begin with it and end with it, but spend a considerable time looking at this concept of the remnant throughout the entire Bible. Revelation 12, verse 17. Now, if you have the King James Version of the Bible, it is a little different than the New King James. And although I like the New King James for many translations, this one is not a good one in New King James. I'll read New King James, then I'll read King James, and I'll tell you why. And I just want to show you a difference in how, why words are important in the Bible. In Revelation 12, verse 17, it says, The dragon, who's the dragon in the Bible? The devil was enraged, what does that mean? Angry with the woman, a church, and went to make war with the rest of her offspring and keep the, to, who keep the commandments of God and the testimony of Jesus. You see that expression in New King James says, rest of the offspring. Does anybody have a um, King James version of the Bible? What does it say? The remnant of her seed. Does do those two words make a difference? They make a, really a big difference in this passage. See, when the Bible uses the word simply rest, it could mean simply something that's left over. It, 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 could, it doesn't have the richness of the word remnant. Um, and the translators of the New King James really missed it on that point. Um, the word remnant in the Bible is a very rich word. It's a word that has to do, as I'll show you, with posterity. It has, the concept of remnant is the concept of seed. And if you have, for example, if you planted corn one year, and you plant that corn, and then have some seed left over that you save to plant for the next year, the, the DNA in the seed of the corn that you have that year uh, will be carried over from the DNA of the seed of the corn the previous year. So this word remnant has to do with, with the DNA, the original characteristics of something. I'd like to go through the Old Testament, and we're going to study the word remnant through the Old Testament, and then we're going to come into the New Testament and study the word remnant, and then we're going to look and see how that applies today to the Adventist church in Scripture. So we're going to begin in the book of Genesis. The first mention of the word that we have remnant in the Bible is in the book of Genesis. And you're going to go to Genesis chapter 45, and you're going to look at verse 7. Genesis, the 45th chapter, and you're going to look at the 7th verse. Now, this is the story of Joseph. And you recall in the story of Joseph, Joseph is sold into captivity. He is in the pit. He goes from the pit to the prison. Eventually, he goes to the palace. And uh, we're looking here at Joseph's description to his brothers of why God allowed him to go through that captivity. And when you come to Genesis 45, verse 7, it says, but do not, no, verse 5, 6, and 7, it says, but now do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. So God had a purpose for Joseph even in captivity. For these two years, the famine has been in the land. And there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing or harvesting. So there were seven years of plenty, seven years of famine. Now they've been through two years of that famine. Now, notice what the seventh verse says. God sent me before you to preserve what? A what? A posterity. What do some other translations say? A remnant for you in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. Now, you see that word that some Bibles translate posterity. Fifty-five times in the Hebrew, it's translated remnant. The Hebrew word there is a word called sherith, sherith. And it's an amazing word. It means to preserve your identity. So what Joseph is saying to his family is, God sent me here, down into the land of Egypt, to preserve the identity of a people, so the identity of that people would not be lost. So in the famine, uh, the sons of Abraham would not all, the sons of Isaac and Jacob and the nation of Israel would not be destroyed. God wants me to preserve that remnant. He wants me to preserve that posterity. He wants me to preserve that unique movement of God that will bless the Old Testament world with the light of the glory of God. So the first introduction of the word remnant that we see in Genesis 45, verse 7, 
has to do with the preservation of a people. So the word remnant is not typically a word used for individuals, although sometimes it is, but most time it's not. It's a word used as a corporate whole to preserve a people. So when you look at the word remnant throughout the Old Testament, here's what you see. You see the three Ps. God's preserving a people, God is pardoning a people when they fail, and God is purifying a people. So the concept of remnant in the Old Testament is a people who are preserved by God to share the light of God's love and glory with others, a people that are pardoned by God, forgiven by God, and a people that are purified by God. Now let's continue our study on the remnant in the Old Testament. Isaiah 10, verse 20 to 22. Once you understand the Old Testament usage of the word remnant, the book of Revelation comes alive to you. You see things in Revelation that you've not seen before. Revelation becomes a much more exciting, a much more thrilling book. Isaiah, the 10th chapter, the 20th to the 22nd verses. Now here, Israel has been scattered. Here, Israel has been in captivity. And here, God is coming. And he talks about a remnant that will be gathered together. So we're going to look at all the concepts of the remnant, then put it together for Revelation. Isaiah chapter 10, verse 20 and onward. It shall come to pass in that day that the remnant of Israel, Isaiah 10, verse 20 and onward. It will come to pass in that day that the remnant of Israel, and such as have escaped to the house of Jacob. What have they escaped? They've escaped a Syrian bondage and captivity and destruction. Will never again depend on him who defeated them, but they will depend on the Lord. Who are these remnant? They've escaped destruction. They depend on the Lord. Verse 21. The remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. For though your people, O Israel, as, be as the sand of the sea, yet a remnant of them will return. Where are they going to return to? Jerusalem, to establish true worship. So what do we discover about the remnant here? The remnant went through challenges. The Assyrians attacked them. The, the remnant went through captivity. But the promise of God was, I will gather you from all the nations where you have been uh, captive. I will bring you back to your own land, to Jerusalem. You'll establish true worship there. So what have we discovered about the remnant so far? The remnant preserve a seed. The remnant are a posterity. The, the remnant have the DNA of God. The, what have we discovered about the remnant? When they are scattered in the Old Testament, God brings them back to reveal his light and his glory and his love and his grace and his goodness. The remnant is this special term. Now, here in Isaiah 37, verse 31 and 32, we look at this concept of the remnant again. The remnant are those who have escaped the corruption and destruction the corruption and the idolatry of Assyria. They're the ones protected and preserved by God. Isaiah 37 is a chapter about Sennacherib and his attack on Israel and the word of the Lord protecting uh, Hezekiah and Hezekiah's prayers. Isaiah 37, verse 31 and 32. Isaiah 37, 31 and 32. And the, what's that word in verse 31, everybody? What is it? And the what? remnant who have escaped of the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward. So who are the remnant? They take root downward. They, they're rooted in the word of God. They're anchored in Christ. They are rooted in the teachings of the Bible. Who are these remnant? They take root where? Downward and they what? Bear fruit upward. So they are rooted in God's word, anchored in God's word. They are anchored in true worship. They reject false worship, and they bear fruit. For out of Jerusalem, that is out of the sanctuary, the people of God shall go a remnant, and those who escape from Mount Zion. So the remnant are those in the Old Testament, loyal, faithful, obedient to God, who are witnesses to God's grace and God's glory. The remnant in the Old Testament are those who have escaped the corruption of Babylon and who represent aright the people of God. That's the concept of the remnant. Now, there are three things that God does with them. He preserves them. We've been talking about that. But now you'll notice something very, very 
something very something else. In the Old Testament, you have two groups of prophets. They're called the major prophets and the what? Why are the minor prophets minor? Because their message is minor? Is the message of the minor prophets just as important as the message of the major prophets? Sure it is. But what's the difference? Major prophets' books are what? Longer. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and the minor prophets' books are shorter. So minor only in the sense of shorter. Now here is something fascinating where the major prophets largely concentrate on the history of Israel, the minor prophets do that as well, but the minor prophets take, what you, take the nature of Israel and launch it into the last days. So they blend prophecies of the, uh, of the Israel and Judah, but they also take us into the last days. So when you look at the prophecies, for example, of Micah and Zephaniah, you're looking at prophecies that relate not only to Jerusalem, but relate to end time. So let's go to Micah chapter 4, verse 6 to 8, and see what Micah tells us about the remnant. And Micah gives to us an incredibly encouraging message regarding the remnant. You look at the book of Micah, little tiny book, Old Testament. If you, uh, if you have a difficult time finding it, you go to the book of Daniel, then you go to Hosea, and you go to Joel, and keep going, and you'll see it. Amos, Obadiah, Micah. Here we go. Micah chapter 4. Micah chapter 4, verse 6 through 8. Now, this is talking about the future triumph of God's people and the future triumph of God's message. And it says, in that day, says the Lord, I will assemble the lame. Now, this is very interesting. I'll assemble the lame. I will gather the outcast, and those whom I have afflicted, I will make the lame a remnant, and the outcast a strong nation. We need to stop there. I'll make the lame a remnant. What's that talking about? The devil has attacked you, and you look back over your past life, and you see numerous occasions in your past life where you have fallen. Numerous occasions where you have sinned. And you wonder, can God really use me? And a prophecy written over 700 years ago comes echoing and re-echoing down the centuries. And God says, I'm going to take the lame. Those that have fallen, those that have betrayed my purpose, I'm going to take the lame and I'm going to make them the remnant. I'm going to make them of the seed that will be faithful to me. I will pardon their iniquity, and I will raise up a generation that will bring light and glory to the world. So here in Micah, the fourth chapter, and the sixth verse and on, God is saying, the remnant are not some super elite who have never failed. The remnant are not some super People who have some kind of super perfection that none of us can ever achieve. The remnant are common young people, common adults like you and me. They have failed. They have disappointed their Lord. But God is a God that heals the lame. God is a God that repair, that, that heals the afflicted. He is a God that picks us up when we have fallen. So here in Micah, the fourth chapter, the Bible talking about the remnant says, verse 6, in that day, says the Lord, I'll assemble the lame, I'll gather the outcast. Maybe you are an outcast from Israel, an outcast from the God's true purpose and plan. And those I've afflicted, I'll make the remnant. And the outcast, a strong nation. Somebody says to me, look, the Adventist church is not living up in every aspect to the plan and the principles of God. And what does the prophecy say? I will make the outcast a strong nation. There is yet a mighty revival coming to the people of God where the church of God will yet fulfill its destiny. The, prophes the prophecies of the Old Testament reveal it. Now look, I'll make the lame a remnant, the outcast, verse 7, a strong nation. The Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion. For now on from now on, even forever. And you, O tower of the flock, the stronghold of Zion, to you it will come, even the former dominion. That's the first dominion shall come, the kingdom of the daughter of Jerusalem. In other words, 
all of the prophecies in the Old Testament that said that Israel would be led to the promised land, eat in the land of milk and honey, they were types of the fact that God would lead his end-time remnant into the eternal promised land, and he will take the outcasts. He'll gather them. God's going to gather the outcasts. He's going to gather the Muslims. God's going to gather the Hindus. God is going to gather the secular modernists. God's going to gather young people on university campuses. He's going to move. He's going to heal the lame and the afflicted. He's going to bring them into a last day remnant, and through the light of the glory of God, it will shine on this world. If I were in an Adventist meeting, somebody would say hallelujah. <laughs> All right, these Adventists, I don't know about them sometimes. All right. Zechariah, Zephaniah, chapter 3. I've been 50 years I've been preaching the Adventist message. I am more excited about it today than I was when I started 50 years ago, I'll tell you. You know, I'm 70 years old. I stand on the great platforms of the world preaching the Adventist message, and the more I preach it, the richer it becomes. You know, stood there in Moscow in the Kremlin Auditorium, uh, visited China and shared the message of God, Muslim countries. The more I study the Word of God, the more excited I am with what God is doing through His people. So we're studying the concept of the remnant. We're looking at Zephaniah, the third chapter. All right, so let's summarize. What have you discovered so far about the remnant? What have you discovered so far about the remnant? Where's the first mention of the remnant in the Bible? Where is that? Genesis 45, verse what? 7. The word Bible used the word remnant. There's another word used also. What is it? posterity. So when we see remnant in Genesis 45-7, we're talking about DNA. We're talking about the characteristics of the original faith of God's people. We've seen that God has had a remnant throughout the Old Testament, that these are his seed that he's preserving. We've seen that the remnant have not, are not a perfect people, but are people preserved by God to reveal the light of his glory. We've seen the chief characteristic of the remnant is faithfulness to God, and we've seen that God pardons their iniquity. We're going to Zephaniah chapter 3. Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 8 through 20. I'm going to come down and just summarize, and we're going to look at verse 13. God is bringing up a remnant. He has, in that remnant, God has preserved them. God has pardoned them. And now we're going to look at how God purifies this remnant. He preserves, he pardons, he purifies. Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 13. The remnant of Israel shall do no unrighteousness. So the remnant of Israel shall do no unrighteousness. So he's going to have a purify, purified people. They're going to be faithful to him. Nor shall a deceitful tongue be found in their mouth. They'll feed their flocks and lie down. No one shall make them afraid. Now, verse 14 to 17 is amazing. Sing, O daughter of Zion. That's, daughter of Zion is always God's people. Shout, O Israel, God's people. This is the remnant, the faithful to God, those that have the DNA of faithfulness, those that have been pardoned by God's grace, those that have been purified by God's power. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, O daughter of Zion. The Lord has taken away your judgments. They are not condemned. He's cast out your enemy. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall see disaster no more. This is the remnant. In that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Do not fear, Zion, let not your hands be weak. The Lord your God in your midst, the Mighty One will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He'll quiet you with love. He'll rejoice over you with singing. God looks over this world, a world of sex-centered, thrill-jaded, morally twisted generation. And God looks over the corruption of the world. And as New Year's Eve comes, people are out in New Year's Eve parties getting half drunk committing immoral acts, and God looks over this world, and there's a lot for God to cry about. But as he looks over this world, he sees a remnant. Those that have the DNA of faithfulness, those that have been pardoned by his grace and purified by his power, those that live for his glory and want his glory to be revealed through them. God miraculously moves through this group. And what does he do? He sings over them. He sings over them. Notice verse 15. The Lord has taken away your judgments. You can compare that with Romans 8.1. We won't turn to it, but there is no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus who walk according to the Spirit, not the flesh. He has cast out your enemy. He's cast the enemy out. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. And notice, the Lord your God, verse 17, you're missed. He's the mighty one. He'll save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. 
He will quiet you in his love. He'll rejoice over you with singing. God looks over this world and he sees the remnant and he rejoices over them. He rejoices over a group of young people that love him more than they love the world. A group of youth who are committed to him and faithful to him and loyal to him and obedient to him. So when we look through the Old Testament, who are the remnant? The remnant are those in the Old Testament who are pardoned by his grace, purified by his power, and who witness to his glory and love. The Old Testament remnant are those that are faithful to God and those for whom God has given the promise that one day they will enter into the promised land. Now, when we come to the New Testament, there are two prime mentions of the remnant in the New Testament. The first mention is in the book of Romans, and the other is in the book of Revelation. And we are going to look at both of those mentions. So we're going to look at the book of Romans, chapter 8. Romans, rather, chapter 11. Romans, the 11th chapter. Here in Romans, chapter 11, God is speaking about the rise of Christianity and the moving of the Spirit of God to bring thousands into the Christian church. And here Paul in Romans 11 reflects on Israel, and he reflects on the fact of that in Israel, among Judaism, there is still a DNA of faithfulness to whom God is going to bring into the Christian church. But what I want you to see is the usage of the word remnant. And if you look at Romans 11, verse 5. Well, let's go back and look at verse 4 and 5. God, in the first three verses of Romans 11, Paul talks about the fact that Israel has drifted away from God. They have killed the prophets, verse 3, and uh, torn down the altars. But he talks in verse 4 and 5, and he's talking about literal Israel here. But what does the divine response say to him? I've reserved for myself in verse 4, 7,000 have not bowed their knee to Baal. So he's talking about the fact that among Israel, the people of God, there are this remnant that he's going to bring. They have the DNA of faithfulness. He's going to pardon their iniquity. He's going to purify them, verse 5. Even so then at this present time, so Paul's talking about first century at the present time, there's a remnant according to the election of grace. So he says, even in Israel, that have rebelled that many of whom have rebelled against me, idols, worshipers, and those who have departed from my purpose, there is a remnant there, those who have the DNA of faithfulness. Now, with all of that background, we come to Revelation chapter 12. You will understand Revelation much more clearly now. Revelation chapter 12 is like a fast-moving video. It has four major scenes, and it's like you're taking a video clip, and when you take that video clip of Revelation 12, first you get this little shot of something going on up in heaven, and it's Lucifer rebelling against God. It's this beautiful angel of dazzling brightness rebelling against God, and that's why Revelation 12 uh, 7 to 9 says, there was war in heaven. Satan and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought in his angels, and they found their place no more in heaven. They were cast out. So the first video scene you have is the, a rebel angel wanting to be worshipped, not wanting to worship. Uh, the creator exalting himself above the, crea the created being, exalting himself above the creator. So you see that scene, Lucifer is cast out of heaven. Centuries go by. The next scene you see in the book of Revelation uh, chapter 12, is Satan focusing upon Christ. Jesus is born, and Satan tries to destroy him. In the first scene, Jesus wins and Satan loses. Satan's cast out of heaven. Second scene, Jesus wins again. Satan loses again. Christ is preserved. Then you see the third scene, where you have this long 1260-year period, the Middle Ages, and Satan tries to attack the people of God. Again, Satan loses and Jesus wins. Now you come down to Revelation 12, verse 17. And the dragon, Satan, was wroth or angry with the woman, the church, and goes to make war with the rest of her offspring, 
who keep the commandments of God and of the testimony of Jesus, who, go to, who goes to make war with the remnant of her seed. The remnant of God's seed, those that have the DNA of faithfulness, those that have been pardoned by grace and transformed by God's power and be a witness to the world. The Bible says the devil goes to make war with them. Three times in Revelation, the Bible uses the term make war. Take your Bible and turn to Revelation chapter 17. Revelation 17. Verse 14 is the theme of this conference. Revelation 17, verse 14. Revelation 17 talks about a time that church and state unite and the powers of earth have, verse 13, one mind. They give their power and authority to the beast power. But then it says, this union of church and state, this combination of the nations of the world, the political powers and the religious powers, verse 14, these will make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them. For he is Lord of lords and King of kings. For those that are with him are called and chosen and faithful. It's one thing to be called by God. It's another thing to be chosen by God. It's another thing to be faithful to God. Who are those that are called chosen and faithful? They're the remnant. But, you know, this is a rather interesting scene. I imagine it in my mind. Here's this huge dragon. I mean, he's huge. He must be 18, 20 feet tall. You know, some kind of brontosaurus or something. They were, how, how tall are the brontosaurus anyway? They're pretty tall. So you imagine this huge dragon. He's breathing out fire. I don't know. Do dragons breathe out fire? I don't know. It's just a myth, huh? So, but he has these huge claws. And so I just imagine this huge dragon, you know, a few tons, 18 feet tall, and breathing out fire. And uh, so he approaches, and there's this little lamb. And he thinks, ah, this lamb, I'm going to have that lamb for dinner. That's, that's, that's easy. I'm going to throw him up in the air, and he's, that's just my appetizer, you know. <laughs> that's just my appetizer. What does the Bible say over here? This is very interesting. Look at Revelation chapter 17. It's not that the brontosaurus has the lamb for dinner, it's the lamb has the brontosaurus. He takes care of him pretty good. Verse 14, these shall make war with the lamb. That's the dragon, the beast, the false prophet. The powers of church and state united. It appears that the little remnant have little possibilities of surviving. But with Christ on our side, we have a majority. These will make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those that are with him are called and chosen and faithful, the remnant. In the final conflict between good and evil, it appears that there is little opportunity for God's people to survive. The powers of hell are marshaled against them. But the incredible good news is that in Jesus and by Jesus and because of Jesus, the faithful remnant of God triumph over the principalities and powers of hell. Three times in Revelation, it talks about making war. Revelation 12, verse 17, these shall make war. Revelation 17, verse 14, they will make war. Revelation 19, Revelation 19. And we're looking there at Revelation 19. Now, here, this is not the dragon who's making war, this somebody else who's making war. Revelation 19, 11, 12, 13. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him, this verse 11, was faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes what? War. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, and with it he should strike the nations. And he himself shall rule them with a rod of iron. Who is this? Verse 16, he's the King of kings and Lord of lords. In the book of Revelation, the remnant become the object of Satan's attack. And it appears that there's no way out, around, or through. Satan hated faithful Israelites who preserved a knowledge of the true God and were obedient to the commandments of God in the midst of idolatry. That's why he tried to destroy the remnant throughout the centuries. God preserved his remnant. 
God pardoned his remnant and God purified his remnant. Coming to the book of Revelation, in the last days of earth's history, the powers of hell will consolidate, church and state will unite, and the remnant will be the object of Satan's attack once again. But praise God, he is the mighty one. He is greater than all the powers of hell, greater than all the powers of evil, and his remnant will be preserved. Now in the book of Revelation, there are four chapters dedicated particularly to identifying the remnant. Revelation chapter 3 talks about the spiritual condition of the remnant, Laodiceanism. Revelation 10 talks about the historic rise of the remnant out of the disappointment of 1844. Revelation 14, which we'll study in our next session, is the message of the remnant. But Revelation 12 has for us the identifying characteristics of the remnant. So as this session comes to an end, we need to really hone in now. We need to focus in the next 12 to 15 minutes on these identifying characteristics. Revelation 12, verse 17. And we look there, the dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went to make war with the remnant of her seed, those to preserve the true DNA. And it identifies them as those who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Let's look at the expression who keep the commandments of God. Back to Revelation 14. God is going to have an end time a people that are faithful to him. They are saved by grace that leads to obedience. Their faith is so good that it works. Faith without works is really presumption. All genuine, authentic faith leads to life transformational works. And so here in Revelation chapter 12, verse 17, God has a remnant who exalt the commandments of God. Just like in the Old Testament, when his remnant were faithful to him and Babylon was worshiping idols in unfaithfulness, in disobedience to the commandments, so in the last days of earth's history, where spiritual Babylon is filled with idolatry and sun worship, God has a faithful group of people who have the DNA of allegiance to him, who keep his commandments, including the Bible Sabbath. Revelation chapter 14, in verse 7, you see the call to worship the Creator, saying with a loud voice, Fear God uh, and give glory to him, for the harvest judgment is come and worship the one that made. We're going to study more about that in the next session. The one that made heaven and earth. Worship the Creator. In verse 9 of Revelation chapter 14, then the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anybody worships the beast. So in verse 7, we're told to worship the what? Revelation 14, 7, we are told to worship who? Revelation 14, 9, we're told not to worship who? The beast. So Revelation 14, 7, everybody, we worship the what? Creator. Revelation 14, 9, we don't worship who? The beast. Revelation 14, 12, what do we do? Here are they that do what? Keep the commandments of God. Here are those that have the patience. That is the endurance. The better translations for patience here is endurance of the saints. Who are the saints? They're the believers. Here are those that have the endurance of the believers. What's another word for those that have the endurance of the believers? What have we been studying about? The remnant, right? Okay. So here are those that have the endurance of the believers. They have the genetic characteristics spiritually of ancient Israel who were faithful to God. You see, they are the posterity, the line of faithful believers that comes from Genesis down through the generations. They are those that have been pardoned, purified, and have preserved true faith. So we find them here. Here are those, verse 12, here are those that here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Now, does it say faith in Jesus? No, faith of Jesus. 
Is there a difference between having faith in Jesus and having the faith of Jesus? There is. The faith of Jesus is, is much more than faith in Jesus. Much more. The faith of Jesus is the same quality faith that Jesus Christ had. When Christ went to Gethsemane and he pled for this world, he said, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but thy will be done. When Jesus hung on the cross and he bore the sins of the entire human race on the world, he hung there as a condemned sinner, in having his heart wrenched from the Father's heart, willing to go into the grave and be eternally lost for you and for me if, that what, what, if that's what it took. The faith of Jesus is the quality of faith that Jesus had in a living trust in the Father so that whatever happens in your life, you never give up. When Christ hung on the cross, he consciously made a decision to do the Father's will at any cost to himself. So here, in Revelation 14, verse 12, when the powers of hell are arrayed against God's people, when every earthly support is cut off, when darkness surrounds them, they faithfully keep the commandments of God because the quality of Christ's faith lives in their hearts and transforms their lives and gives to them an inner strength to trust in spite of that darkness. So how do we identify the remnant? The remnant are those who have come to Jesus and been pardoned. They've been purified by his grace. They have Christ's faith dwelling within them. And that leads them to make a decision to do God's will and live obedient, godly lives at end time. The remnant church is a church that leads people to Christ, to his pardon and his grace, and leads them to obedience to the commandments of God. Now, there is one other characteristic of the remnant that we need to take a look at. It's found here in Revelation chapter 12, and it's found in verse 17. Revelation 12, verse 17. And the dragon, Satan, is angry with the woman, and he goes to make war with the rest of her offspring, or the remnant of her seed, who keep the commandments of God. These people, through faith in Jesus and the quality of his faith living in their lives, are led to be obedient. But they have something. They have the testimony of Jesus. So these people are guided by the testimony of Jesus. I wonder what that is. Well, the classic text, of course, is Revelation 19, verse 10. We will look at it, but we'll look at some other texts and round that thought out a little bit. The Bible does define the testimony of Jesus well in Revelation 19, verse 10. John is taken off into prophetic vision, and in prophetic vision, an angel appears to him. He is ready to fall at the feet of that angel and worship him. Revelation 19, verse 10, And I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, See thou do it not, I am of your fellow servant. Notice the words fellow servant. We're going to look at those a little later. And of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus, worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is what? The spirit of prophecy. So what does this mean, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy? The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Christ is testifying through the prophets to his earthly people. So what is the spirit of prophecy? It is Jesus testifying through his prophets to his earthly people. Did Jesus testify through Isaiah to his people in the days of Israel? Did he do that? Did Jesus testify through Jeremiah? Did he testify through Daniel? So when God chooses a prophet, God blesses that prophet with visions and dreams, and God testifies to that prophet, to that then generation. Now, did you see this expression here in Revelation 19, verse 10? 
I fell at his feet to worship him, and he said to me, See thou do it not, I am thy fellow servant. Now, it's very interesting. Go over to Revelation 22, and look there at Revelation 22, verse 9. The angel comes, and John is going to worship him again. This is almost the same language, but something is added in Revelation 22, verse 9, that is not added in Revelation 19, verse 10. So you look at Revelation 22, verse 9. Then he said to me, see, in verse 8, he's going to fall at his feet. He's going to worship him again. Verse 9, Revelation 22. Then he said to me, see thou not do that, for I am your fellow servant and of your brethren the prophets. Aha. So the angel identifies that he's the angel of prophecy. Revelation 12, 17. There'll be a remnant. They are pardoned purged and purified. They reflect God's love and glory to the world. They're totally sold out to Christ. They are faithful to him. They reflect in their lives an obedient lifestyle of keeping his commandments. But this last day end time remnant as well is guided by a special gift of Jesus. Jesus testifies through his prophet to that last day end time people to prepare them for the coming of Jesus. And so one of the characteristics of the remnant is the gift of prophecy. Let's go back and look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Does God restore the prophetic gift at end time? 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And is this one of the identifying marks of the remnant? 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're looking here at verse 5, 6, 7, and 8. It says that you were enriched, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 5 to 8, that you were enriched in everything by him in all utterance and all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ and the testimony of Jesus is the what, everybody? Gift of prophecy. Was confirmed in you so that you come short in how many gifts? No gifts, eagerly waiting for what? The revelation of the coming of Jesus Christ. What will that do? It'll confirm you to the end that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus will get, will, his end time church will come behind in no gift, and he will impart to that end time church the gift of prophecy to do what? To confirm them to the end. Ephesians chapter 4 shares this as well. Ephesians chapter 4. If Jesus has a special gift for me, I want that gift, don't you? If Jesus says, look, I will testify through my prophet at end time, that will be a gift for you. It will be one of the identifying marks of the remnant, but it will be a gift to help to prepare people for the coming of Jesus. I don't want to say, well, Jesus, I don't need that gift. You know, Jesus, uh, you know, I got the Bible, and the Bible is good enough for me. The Bible is good enough for me. But if Jesus, if the Bible speaks about the gift of prophecy, I want to take all of the Bible. You know, is very interesting. The story is told of James White in early Adventist history, Ellen White's wife. And one day he met a, a non-denominational a, a preacher, and the preacher said to him, well, Pastor White, the Bible is good enough for me. And you know, James White could be very, um, I was going to say sharp-tongued, I didn't mean it like that, very witty is the word I was seeking for. So James White said, well, the Bible's good enough for me too. And he said, yeah, but you Adventist, you have something in addition to the Bible. Uh, you have the, that prophecy in that woman, Ellen White. And James White smiled and he said, yeah, you know, the difference between me and you is that you only believe part of the Bible. We believe all of it. <laughs> we believe even that part that talks about the rise of the gift of prophecy in the last days of earth's history. And so look at Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. We're looking at verse 8. Ephesians 4, verse 8. Therefore he says... When he ascended on high, he led captivity captive. Some margins say he led a host of captive captives. When Christ died, graves were opened at his death, according to Matthew 27. Some were resurrected. When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives. Those who had been raised, a sample group that represent many who will be resurrected, the righteous at the second coming. He led them captive. He gave gifts to men. We're going to look at verse 11. He himself gave some to be apostles. Now, 
when Christ entered the sanctuary above and was inaugurated there, he poured out his spirit on earth and he raised up the New Testament Christian church. The Holy Spirit was poured out. 3,000 were baptized on the day of Pentecost. But he gives to the church apostles, church leaders. He gives to the church prophets who have divine vision. This is a New Testament gift. He gives evangelists that can preach to large groups. He gives pastors who are teachers. That are, Why are all of these gifts of the Spirit given? All of them given. For the equipping of the saints, that's the believers, for the work of ministry. So all of these gifts of the Spirit, administration, pastors, prophets, evangelists, are to help the church be equipped to witness for the edifying. They are given to build up the body of Christ till we all come to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to the perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Have we come to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ yet? No. That we should no longer be tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine. We're going to talk about that in our third session today. Every wind of doctrine blowing throughout the remnant church today. But notice, what is it that stabilizes the church? What is it that helps the church not be carried away by every wind of doctrine? It, it, one of those gifts of the Spirit, certainly pastors, certainly evangelists, certainly divine administration, but one thing is the gift of prophecy. If you saturate your mind with the gift of prophecy, you will not be blown away by every wind of doctrine that blows through the church. And it says, verse 15, or verse 14, that they should be children, no longer children, tossed to and fro, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness which, which they lie in wait to deceive. Let's summarize what we've done so far. The term remnant is used throughout the Bible. It is a term pregnant with meaning that is used to describe the faithfulness of a people who have the DNA of commitment to God. The remnant are not a perfect people. The Bible says that they'll be pardoned by Christ, that he will work in their lives to purge their iniquity. The Bible says of this remnant as well that God will use them powerfully to bring his glory to the world. As the Bible describes them, it always describes them in the term of faithfulness to God. In the book of Revelation, a mighty conflict takes place, but there is a remnant, those again that are faithful to God, that are totally sold out for Christ. God will use them to powerfully impact the world. This faithful remnant are described as a corporate entity, a body, a church, but much more than a church, a movement of God. They're described as having faith in Jesus and the quality of Jesus' faith living in them. They're described as obedient, keeping God's commandments, including the Sabbath, and being guided by the gift of prophecy. The reason I'm a Seventh-day Adventist today is not because I was born an Adventist. I was not. I was born in a lovely Roman Catholic home. It's not because I wanted to choose a church. It's because God miraculously divined me and divinely led me to a people in the book of Revelation as outlined as the remnant. Are Seventh-day Adventists arrogant as they believe in the concept of the remnant? Not at all. Adventists are not arrogant. We are humbly thankful that in this generation, God still has a remnant that he will use to impact the world with his glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our Bible study this morning. I know although I've studied these things for five decades, 50 years, every time I open the Bible it excites me again, thrills me again to see what Christ has done and is doing through his people. Help us ever be mindful of the fact the Seventh Avenue Church is not some, simply some other denomination, not simply one of thousands of churches on the landscape of history, but that you have divinely, miraculously raised up a remnant for this generation. And Lord, I pray thee that you'd help us to live in the light of that truth and share it with others in Jesus' name. Amen. This message was recorded at the GYC 2015 conference called chosen, faithful, in Louisville, Kentucky. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, 
seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.